So how do you turn a lost pair of glasses, a heart for service, and a brain for business into a billion dollar plus social venture? That is the exploration we dive into with my guest today, Dave Gilboa, who is one of the founders of Warby Parker. If you don't know Warby Parker, they are a company that started with a social mission and also to solve a really big problem by offering super high quality eyeglasses at a human price. And they did this at a time when the economy in the US was kind of collapsing, yet they were committed. They were four friends from school and it all kind of kicked off when one of them, Dave, was on a flight back from traveling and he lost a really expensive pair of glasses and couldn't understand why upon returning, the iPhone that he purchased was a fraction of the cost of the glasses that he lost. That is where our story begins. Really, really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Good Life Project is supported by Simple Habit. It is a beautifully designed five-minute meditation app that is designed to help you um, kind of busy people stress less, achieve more, and live better through a series of guided programs. They have meditation guides for specific lifestyles or symptoms designed by the world's best teachers that range from mindfulness experts at Google to former monks. You can actually browse over 1,000 different topics, create customized playlists, set daily reminders, so you can kind of live at ease. You'll know you'll never miss it when you really need it. It's really gorgeously designed. Did I mention that? Let's you super quickly choose a meditation based on type, teacher, and length, and then dive right in. And it is available on iOS, Android, and on the web. I have actually been digging the short and sweet work break offerings that let me choose kind of a mid-afternoon meditation break based on how I feel or what I need on any given day. One day, um, it may be about focus. Another day, it's about de-stressing. And the super simple visual interface really makes it easy to find what you want and get started with ease. For a free seven-day trial to the the premium library, visit simplehabit.com slash goodlife. That's simplehabit.com slash goodlife, or click the link in the show notes. I was taking a look at your Instagram account. Your Instagram account essentially looks like this gorgeous travelogue from around the world. So is, is, is that a big part of who you are? Yeah, so I was actually born in Sweden, and when I was six, moved to to San Diego. But I think, but we would go back to Sweden every summer for a few months, and and my family loves to travel, and kind of I got that travel bug. And so when I graduated college, any any opportunity I would have since then, grab a backpack and and go to kind of a destination that I'd been to before, and just kind of figure things out along the way. And I think it kind of travels had profound impact on my my view of the world, both in terms of kind of the the beauty that's out there, the diversity that that exists across the world, but also uh, sort of the disparity in terms of opportunity that that people have across the globe. And I mean, I think that also has kind of in, informed my view about kind of the my level of responsibility. I feel super lucky to have been born into my situation. And I, I feel a lot of responsibility to figure out kind of how I can help make the the world better and 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 hopefully leave a positive impact on a lot of people uh, along the way, both in terms of people that I, I kind of directly know and can impact and then uh, sort of the, the broader population. 
Yeah. How old were you when you became aware of this sense? I mean, is this something that has come to you over the years as more an adult in your exploration of a lot of travel? Or was this something that as a kid you you had a sense of it before? Uh, you know, I think I was um, always excited to go new places as a kid, but it wasn't until sort of kind of college years that I think I became kind of more aware of, of surroundings and, and, and recognized that, that, you know, travel wasn't just about kind of having fun and, and going to, to nice places that I actually enjoyed going off the beaten path and, and connecting with communities and, and, and people in places like rural Guatemala or Cambodia and, and just places that were so completely different from my day-to-day life and my experience and just kind of trying to understand what it would have been like to be born into those situations and, and, and understanding kind of different cultures and uh, in, in, in different walks of life. Yeah. Where was the first place that you went where you, it, your eyes were really open to that, where it, it moved you in a, in a compelling way? I spent about a month kind of traveling uh, through Kenya and Tanzania. This was, let's see, around 2003. And kind of seeing some of the poverty around, you know, some of the most beautiful places I've ever seen and a rich, vibrant culture from kind of everyone that we uh, interacted with, but also the extreme poverty and seeing people that really had nothing and were living on, you know, less than a few dollars a day, but they were still such genuine good people. They're, you know, just really happy and, and, and just that had kind of a profound impact on kind of comparing that into kind of the, the own, you know, my own situation, my own lifestyle. Yeah. So you grew up essentially in San Diego, from what I know, the kid of two physicians, always having a sense that that was going to be your path. Yeah. So both my parents are doctors. My older sister is a nurse practitioner. You know, growing up, I was 100% sure I was going to become a doctor. The only thing I kind of had to decide on was which kind of doctor. Right. What's and a specialty? Would, <laughs> right. And I would, you know, go follow my parents around. Uh, was it more a sense of legacy or was it something where like you genuinely were like, this is interesting to me? I was genuinely interested in it. Yeah, I've always just been fascinated by kind of how the human body works. I was really, you know, I could see that my parents took a lot of pride in in their work and, you know, would have dinner conversations about you know, my dad's a pediatrician and where kind of a, a baby would come in and, and present certain symptoms. And he took, you know, actions that maybe not, you know, maybe not every would have been obvious to, to everyone that uh, looked at that baby and, and ended up kind of saving that baby's life and and just seeing kind of how impactful that was in motivational uh, that was for for him and and so I think they you know my parents instilled in me the sense that your profession should not just be a way to earn a paycheck that uh, you should really be thinking about ways that that you can help people you know seeing those you know the two examples of my parents that you know both seemed really satisfied with their their line of work it, and being interested in 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 science and in the body it uh, just kind of seemed like the natural path where I, yeah, I didn't have to think about really anything else and so I went to I went to Berkeley I was a bioengineering major took all the pre-med classes took the MCAT so you're just like this is it I know I'm like doing everything to set myself up for this path yeah, so it's kind of yeah fulfilling the, the prophecy in in a lot of ways, and then this was kind of the, the late '90s, early 2000s, and at the time, managed care HMOs were kind of starting to take over large parts of the, yeah. the healthcare industry. It's completely, it's like it's not it's almost an entirely different profession at this right. point because of that. Yeah. 
And so, you know, talking to my parents and their friends who are doctors, you know, all of them were kind of complaining about what was happening in the industry, that they weren't able to spend as much time with patients, that there was too much bureaucracy, talking about the good old days and kind of for, for the first time started question, you know, is, is, is this uh, kind of the, the only path that, that makes sense for me to go on? Yeah, but I mean, what's that like for you, though? Because this is something where it sounds like, like from the earliest age, you're like, this is it. And then you go to school and in school, you're like, this is it. You're taking all the classes that would set you up for it. And then to see your parents who are, you know, held up as the example of what this can be like, start to question it uh, along the way. It's got to be hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it over a period of a couple of years, you know, started to, uh, you had some doubt started to creep in if this was kind of the the only option for me. And, you know, my parents are still, even though they were kind of, you know, complaining on the periphery, they were still very supportive of me going to to med school. They were, you know, each of them were the, the first uh, people in their families to go to college and then go to school. And they grew up really without any money. And, and so they, you know, also saw this as a path to just, you know, their education and, and, and becoming doctors had created really great lives for, for themselves and their family. And they were able to help people. And so they were still kind of largely pushing me to go in that direction, but just some, some doubts started creeping in. And then I started asking questions. And at the same time, a lot of my friends at Berkeley, they were getting jobs at investment banks and consulting firms. And they told me that you know, they, they really liked what they were doing. And these firms, they were hiring people that were smart. That My first response was, well, I don't know anything about business. I'll have taken the science classes. And they said, well, they don't really care about that. They, they're looking for smart people and they can just train you uh, to know what you need to know. And so after my junior year of college, decided maybe I'll, I'll give this a shot for a summer, see what that feels like, something kind of outside of science. And uh, so I got an internship at the consulting firm Bain & Company and really enjoyed the experience, worked with some incredibly smart people on kind of interesting, challenging business issues, learned a ton. And then I you know, went back to school. I was a senior, still decided to take the MCAT. So you're still in, your, in the back of your mind, you're like, I still need to keep this door open. Yeah. And then, yeah, did well on the MCAT and realized those scores were good for five years. And so kind of still tried to maintain optionality and, and keep doors open, but ended up getting a full-time offer from Bain and then uh, accepting that. Right. But I mean, it's interesting because in, in your back pocket, you've still got, okay, so essentially I have a five-year window to play with this. And if I really want, I've got my grades, I've got my MCATs. I, you know, it's like, it's almost like, you know, I can play this out for up to five years. And then if it's not working and I, I feel called back to medicine, I can still do that. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I joke that I think my parents are still hoping I'll go back to med school one day, uh, but I think they've- uh, It's like the five-year window has expired a little, a little bit at this point, right? You know, I think it was, you know, partially to maintain kind of my own peace of mind that, you know, I did have optionality and, and I think maybe partly to assuage some of their fears that, you know, if things didn't turn out the the way that I hoped that I you know, could always go back on, on the path that they had, uh, they had trailblazed yeah. for me. No, I totally get that. I actually have a very past life as a lawyer. And when I yeah, practiced for about four or five years and when I left, I, I think it was probably even though I, I had no intention of going back to the practice of law and I haven't, and it's been you know, over two decades now, I think I probably kept my license as, you know, I was a member of the New York State Bar for probably another decade before I was just like, okay. It, it's time <laughs> it's to retire time. then. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, like, I will almost do anything other than that. I'm just not going back. I was like, okay. But it was interesting because I was still like, 
in the back of my mind, I was always like, I'm going to pay my dues and do my continuing ed just to keep it there. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. I think there, you know, I've been a couple of times in my life where, yeah, kind of knowing that there is a fallback option, I think gives you an opportunity to take a little bit of risk. And yeah, for, I think for most people kind of joining Bain, becoming a consultant doesn't feel that risky, but given sort of the the mindset that I'd had my entire life growing up that I was going to become a doctor or kind of any deviation from that path felt, felt a bit risky. And so kind of having that five-year window felt a bit like a safety net. Yeah. Were, were your folks totally supportive of that decision? They were not, not totally supportive. I think they were, you know, still kind of pushing me to, to go to med school and, and that was kind of a continuing theme over, over the next few years. Yeah, we um, imagine. But I think they were, you know, happy that I had a job at a reputable firm and I yeah, could kind of support myself. Which is funny too, because when I think of um, like the classic Berkeley grad, I don't think of, okay, so I'm going into one of the top management consulting firms. But I guess maybe there were a lot of people who went in, the, in that direction, especially around then, I guess, because the economy was very different. Yeah. And so a lot of my friends, they were business majors. So there's the high school business, one of the, the top schools and they have an undergrad program. And so a lot of my friends, they kind of went to school and that's what they studied. And so it's a natural kind of funnel into into banks and consulting firms. And so as I was talking to them and they were, you know, making decent money, um, having fun, learning a lot, it seemed like that was, they opened my eyes to alternative paths that I could move forward. And, and really the intention was not to kind of be a consultant for the rest of my life, but it seemed like a good opportunity to learn a lot about business and management in a short period of time. And then the goal would be to then kind of combine that with science or doing something to help people, but really had the, the mindset that, well, I, I think I had the realization that being a practicing physician wasn't the only way to help people and, and make, make the world better. And that kind of got this idea in my mind that maybe I could learn something about business and one day lead a company or an organization that that does something good in the world. Wasn't sure what that would be, but felt like it would be beneficial to learn something about about business and management early on in my career. Yeah. Did you think, I mean, if you had a sense for it back then, did you think it would probably be something around medicine or bioengineering or something like that? Yeah. I thought it would be kind of something science related where, yeah, I could you know, work for a pharmaceutical company or a medical device company or help start something kind of in, in that arena that would be, uh, you know, some scientific solution to a medical problem. So you end up, how long, how long were you at Bain for? So I was there for about three years to start off in Stockholm, uh, transferred, or started off in, in San Francisco, transferred to the Stockholm office. And uh, during that time, I also took six months. They have an externship program where you can leave and work for another company for a short period of time. Most people end up going to one of Bain's clients and, and Bain can kind of help set those things up. I wasn't interested in going to kind of some of the big companies that they were working with. And so I found a, a company called Genomic Health. They'd just gone public. They had a diagnostic test for women who had just been diagnosed with breast cancer to determine the best drug treatments for that particular patient, depending on the, their genetic profile and, and some of the, the markers in uh, the tumor itself. And so it was kind of the, one of the first applications of more personalized medicine as opposed to, to one size fits all. And so worked there for six months, really fascinating experience that kind of reinforced this idea that you could use business to you know, help improve people's lives. And I think reaffirmed my my desire to kind of combine business and, and helping people one day. I mean, it's interesting too, because that 
That probably would have been right around the time that first human genome sequencing happened, right? Yeah, within a couple of years of that. Right. So there's like this, it's almost like this renaissance of, of medicine and healthcare around like this new emerging idea. Like, okay, so yes, we spent $3 billion on it, but like, look what we have here. And now this is a potential map to just for so many people to start to create solutions and ideas. And like you, you use the phrase personalized medicine. It feels like that was right around the window when that was all just like this little flicker, but it was just starting to explode. Yeah, absolutely. For the first time, there's a possibility of using genetic data to help craft solutions that, you know, previously was just kind of one size fits all where, you know, there would be one pill that, you know, regardless of your symptoms, if you had a certain disease state or regardless of your your, your genetic makeup, everyone kind of get the, the the same treatment. And and now for the first time, there was this kind of promise that that you could customized solutions. And I think there was a lot of hype in the early days. And some of that hype was probably unwarranted. And it, it, as it always and, happens. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and now I think there's, you know, a more realistic view that even if you know someone's exact genetic makeup, the body is still such a complex system that it can be really challenging to, you know, design the perfect solution for that one individual, but, but that we are able to, you know, create treatments in a much more precise way than, than previously. Yeah, it, it's amazing. We recently had Carl Zimmer on, who's a like well-known science writer. And uh, his recent book is a 650-page tome on heredity and DNA and like everything that's happened. And he was sharing that even with, started with $3 billion and now it's like $99. But even... Even with the like the the expensive sequencing that you can get done now, which you know only through you know medicine and it costs thousands still, even then I was really surprised to learn that that now like today, uh, there's still a lot of art in the data. It's not just here's the exact map. There, I mean, there's a gazillion data points, but there's still a huge amount of art in like piecing them together in a way that makes any kind of sense, and you can get very different results depending on who's analyzing the data, who's putting the data together, which was kind of surprising to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I've, you know, I've seen that in you know, a couple of recent medical situations from you know, family members and, and friends where, yeah, there's no, you know, I think my perception growing up and studying bioengineering and, and, you know, looking at underlying science, you think that there's kind of one exact solution. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of interpretation and, and yeah, some of these things are as much art as, as they are science. Yeah. I feel like we're in the wild, wild west phase of that, but it's pretty exciting, pretty awesome. Anyway. So, so you, you go out and you do the six month stint, come back and then end up splitting to go to grad school from what I know. Right. Yeah. So before that, I had one kind of more stop. So yeah, I came, I came back to Bain and I felt like I'd learned a lot from my experience there, but was ready to kind of move on to the next thing and wanted to do something to connect business more, more to science and healthcare. And I actually explored two opportunities. So I was either going to move to Uganda, uh, to Kampala, Uganda and work for the Clinton, Clinton HIV, pediatric HIV AIDS initiative as a country director there, or I was going to move to New York and work for Allen and company, a merchant bank. Uh, 
two very different <laughs> options there. Yeah, and they were so different that I literally flipped a coin. Oh, no I, kidding. I first <laughs> tried to write you know, a list of pros and cons and yeah, compare yeah. the opportunities, and they were, I mean, diametrically opposed in kind of every... every it's um, like, how do you even make an apples to apples there? It's like, it's not possible. <laughs> yeah, so I flipped a coin, ended up in Allen & Company as a small merchant bank, I and mean, they were starting a healthcare practice. And so I had kind of this entrepreneurial opportunity to work in finance and invest in companies within an existing firm. I'd always kind of been intrigued by the idea of, of living in New York, but the the Clinton Foundation opportunity also sounded really interesting. And and so I ended up taking the job at Allen & Company, moved to New York. One of my other friends from Bain, I connected him to the Clinton Foundation. He ended up taking the job in Uganda. And so we each worked in those roles for two years and, and kind of lived vicariously through one another. And then after that two-year stint, we both went to business school, both ended up in the star, startup world. And so kind of had different paths, but ended up largely in the same place. That's wild. I mean, to think that that entire thing was based on the flip of a coin. Yeah. I mean, do you ever think <laughs> of like, what if it came up tails? <laughs> it's like, you know, I think my, I think I ultimately would have been in a kind of a somewhat similar place. I think I probably would have ended up coming back to the States, probably going back to school, wanting to do something entrepreneurial, but yeah, it certainly would kind of that, like the choose your own adventure book where you kind of take, take right. one step and like then sliding doors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the show is sponsored by meditation app, 10% happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So you come back, what's your intention when you go back to grad school? So I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I wanted to do something kind of healthcare related. And so, so you knew you wanted to start something. Either start something or join kind of an early stage team. So actually enrolled in a dual degree program, getting my MBA at Wharton 
and a master's of of biotech at Penn's engineering school. And so it was kind of a concurrent dual degree program. During that time, I was also working for Penn's Center for Technology Transfer, kind of the office that is responsible for commercializing scientific discoveries around campus. So if there are grad students or professors that invent something on campus, it's technically the IP of the university and the Center for Tech Transfer is responsible for figuring out how to how to make money from those inventions, either by licensing them or starting companies around them. And so I was working there really with the intention of, you know, hopefully finding some scientific discovery that I could help commercialize. And so I could be kind of the business person that brings this to life and creates a company around something that other people had had discovered. So I really didn't have any great ideas myself kind of coming coming to school. And so figured I want to hang around a lot of smart people, be exposed to a lot of smart ideas. And I mean, hopefully I can use some of these things that I've learned about business to, to help get get things off the ground. But I, in between Allen and Company and and going to business school, I had I took six months off, really for the opportunity to travel and, and backpack around the world. And I had company issued BlackBerry that I turned in on my last day of work, and then I traveled for six months uh, without a phone. And so, went, when would this have been around? Uh, this was two thousand eight. So first I started in in Panama and went overland up through Central America, touching on every country there, ended up in Belize. And then I flew over to Southeast Asia and did uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. Traveling alone or with friends? or At various points, traveling alone and in various points, friends would, would meet up with me. Yeah. What was, I mean, was it in your mind, was it, was it hanging out, was it getting to know the world or were you going there because was there something that you were, you were looking for? No, I was just really wanted to be exposed to to places and cultures that I hadn't seen and wanted to get a bit off the beaten path, kind of not go to any kind of luxury resorts or or places where I'd feel too comfortable. You know, a lot of places, I, you know, I literally just would buy a one-way ticket and then figure things out along the way and keep things fluid and, and stay in hostels and try to, you know, meet interesting people that, you know, had plans to go somewhere the following day. And I just kind of lived spontaneously. And, and that was so different from my very regimented kind of structured days working in, in finance and consulting. And, and so just wanted kind of the, the opportunity to, to explore the world. Yeah. Do you speak any Spanish? Uh, muy poquito. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the only Spanish I probably know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's interesting too, because you're going to places where you don't necessarily, you're not easily understood. Like there's not a common language. It, it, I mean, it seems like you've you 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 have made and you continue to make decisions which put you in uncomfortable situations or circumstances or in in places and environments where it's it's a challenge and where there's no sort of like there's no easy path and granted yes you have a certain amount of opportunity to create that should you choose to but you're making a choice not to yeah i think yeah try to Put myself, you know, intentionally put myself in uncomfortable situations. Um, so what's up with that? <laughs> you know, I think it's the only way that you can you can grow and sort of in, change your perspective on things. And it, you know, it can become easy to fall into a certain routine and surround yourself by people and and in environments that you're you're used to, you're comfortable in. But yeah, you know, I've always found that I. I get the most satisfaction when I put myself in kind of challenging situations and and I think kind of traveling is a great opportunity to do that, kind of throwing yourself into environments that are uncomfortable where, you know, there's some sense of adventure and exploration that goes beyond 
just being a tourist. Yeah. No, I so agree. And I, I didn't start to travel until much later in my life, but I think, you know, when you're, when you go to places where it's off the beaten track, where it's uncomfortable, where, where you're the one who's struggling to communicate, but everybody else around you communicates with themselves and with each other just fine. You know, it gives you a different feeling, you know, when to, to be that person. And I think it also really just, when you leave, you know, New York and the U.S., you realize that we are not the world, you know, and, and, and there is a, a lot that we have here. We just kind of take for granted. Absolutely. It's so eye-opening. Yeah. And so, you know, I figured this was a rare opportunity where I knew I was going back to school and I could have kind of a big chunk of time to, to really kind of take off and, and not have, you know, this wasn't a one week vacation where I had to have everything planned out where, you know, take my time and explore and let spont- uh, spontaneity uh, take me where it may. And so I wanted to take advantage of that. Was there anyone during that six month window or so, was there any one moment or story or, or person that stands out as having like really stayed with you? You know, I think in one of my favorite countries is Guatemala and ended up spending a couple of weeks there and ended up in kind of a, a small village on Lake Atitlan and stayed in kind of a, a home that a Guatemalan family had kind of opened up. And, you know, uh, we were paying to to stay there. Uh, I was there with a couple of friends and, you know, we, we couldn't speak their language. They couldn't speak our language, but they were, you could tell just kind of how friendly and genuine they were. We ended up staying there for like four or five days. And even though we couldn't really communicate, there was just, uh, we would share meals together and kind of play games and they would kind of teach us some of their local games using sticks and a ball left a, a very positive feeling, just kind of how, how welcoming they were, how generous they were, uh, even though they really had no means and yeah, just kind of left just a, a really positive feeling uh, uh, around the experience. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, especially in the, the days that we're in right now, um, exploring like our relationship to Central American, South American culture and, and the rest of the world. It's like, we need more moments like that where we just, it's simple and we can see and feel and touch and taste like our shared humanity. So it comes a time where you actually have to come back. <laughs> Yeah, it's a starting school. And to, uh, along the way, when I was kind of the, the, the second part of the trip, when I was in, in Southeast Asia, ended up losing my only pair of glasses. And so I'd left them on a plane. Uh, we had been doing a bunch of traveling. I was in Northern Thailand and took a small plane. And uh, while we were sitting there, I put in contacts and left my glasses on the plane. And so then I, I came back to the U.S. I was about to to start school, and I needed to buy two things: a phone, a new pair of glasses. And so I went to the Apple Store. The iPhone 3G had just come out. I paid two hundred dollars for this magical device that, you know, especially coming from someone who had been using a BlackBerry, kind of my mind was blown around uh, just the the capabilities of, of this device. And I paid two hundred dollars for that, and then I realized I was going to have to pay seven hundred dollars for a new pair of glasses, and that just didn't make, I mean, it, nothing about that made sense to me. And so I started complaining to anyone that would listen about why glasses were so expensive, just didn't, didn't make any sense and realized that I wasn't the only one that kind of shared that frustration. So at Wharton, our class was about 800 people. Uh, you're divided into learning teams of six people and, and you take all your first year classes together. One of my learning team members was Andy Hunt, who he, who ended up becoming one of my co-founders he had been wondering why no one was selling glasses online that 
This was 2008, so the world looked very different than it does today. But you were starting to see basically every type of product being sold online, even ones that, you know, until a couple of years earlier, people said would never really move to e-commerce. Things like shoes, so Zappos was really in its heyday. Blue Nile was selling engagement rings. Diapers.com was really starting to take off. And yet no one was effectively selling glasses online. And... So then we started talking about that pretty loudly in a computer lab during one of the first weeks of school. And other friend, Jeff Rader, he was there. His He was wearing his glasses that were five years old. His prescription had changed twice. And he had been kind of so frustrated. The glasses were so expensive that he just decided not to buy a new pair. <laughs> and then... It's like raging against the machine. Man. <laughs> right. Neil, who's a co-founder and, and, and co-CEO, he had spent five years running this great organization called Vision Spring. And we knew that he had done something in the glasses world, didn't really know exactly what at that point, but we looped him into the conversation and and he had been, so uh, Vision Spring, that uh, it's a great nonprofit where they're focused on increasing the access to, to glasses uh, amongst the, the world's population, primarily people living on less than $4 a day. So there are close to a billion people around the globe that need glasses that, that don't have access to them. And Vision Spring trains locals in regions like Bangladesh and El Salvador. And I think they're set up in 36 different countries. They train locals to become entrepreneurs and go out into their local communities that otherwise don't have access to glasses and administer vision tests and sell subsidized glasses into those communities. And so it creates jobs. It's a market-based solution. They have to create products that people are willing to buy and through that experience, Neil had been to factories all over the world. He had been producing glasses for people living on less than $4 a day and the kind of the same production lines that for glasses that were being sold for hundreds of dollars. And so he knew that there was nothing inherent in the cost of goods or the, the production of glasses that justified the high prices. So what was keeping the prices up? I mean, it was... Yeah. So uh, we started kind of digging in and realized that kind of the... the only thing that uh, the only answer that we kept coming back to was that there's massive concentration of power in the industry. So I've been wearing glasses since I was 12 years old. I'd never heard of a company called Luxottica, but they own most brands that people associate with eyewear. They own Ray-Ban, Oakley, other people's, Persol, Arnett, dozens of other eyewear-only brands. They have the exclusive license to manufacture and distribute all the glasses and sunglasses for brands like Chanel, Prada, Dolce Gabbana, Ralph Lauren, DKNY, number of others. They own LensCrafters, Sunglass Hut, Pearl Vision, Target Optical, Sears Optical, Macy's Optical. Yeah, and then they also own iMed, which is the second largest vision insurance plan in the U.S. and powers Aetna and a number of other private insurers. And, and so they've just done this great job of creating illusion of choice where if you walk into a lens crafters or a sunglass hut, you see 50 different brands of glasses. As a consumer, you don't realize that all those brands are owned by the same company that owns a store that you're standing in, that owns a vision insurance plan that you're using to pay for those glasses. And so they can effectively charge whatever they want. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, most glasses in the US are marked up 10 to 20 times what they cost to manufacture. And so we just looked at that and said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And, and there's this massive industry, over $100 billion globally, over $30 billion in the U.S. that really hadn't had any innovation on the product side or the distribution side because there was this concentration of power. And so we said, you know, 
there has to be a different way to approach this, to solve the, kind of our own problems as frustrated consumers. We felt for the first time you could really leverage e-commerce to, to create a different business model. So historically, if you, if you wanted to launch a brand of eyewear, you had to sell through Luxotica's channels to get in front of customers. You had to be in LensCrafter, Sunglass Hub, Pearl Vision, Target Optical, right? You, they owned all the distribution. If you wanted to create an eyewear retail chain, you had to carry their glasses, their brands to have something that consumers wanted to buy, Ray-Ban, Oakley, Persol, Arnett. But we felt like for the first time, the advent of the internet and e-commerce, that we could create a vertically integrated brand so create our own brand of eyewear, do all the design in-house, use the highest quality materials, highest quality production lines in the world. But then instead of selling them through kind of traditional channels, uh, we could con- use e-commerce to connect directly with our customers. And uh, that would allow us to operate outside of this artificial construct that the Luxoticas of the world had created and would allow us to dramatically bring down the price of glasses. So instead of selling the prescription glasses for four or five hundred dollars or more, we could sell them for less than a hundred dollars. And so that was kind of the really the the genesis of the idea that uh, got us all all excited. But I think we were equally excited to create an organization that does something good in the world and think about building a for-profit business that that does good in the world. And that's something that was super important to all of us as founders, Neil having been the second employee and, and really running Vision Spring for a few years, seeing you know kind of the, the impact of putting glasses on, on someone's face for the first time and the magnitude of that problem around the world. Jeff and Andy were super passionate about nonprofits and 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 having a positive social impact. And and for me, kind of going back to how I was raised and and thinking about kind of the values that my parents instilled in me. And that was something that super important to me as well. And, and, you know, initially I kind of grappled a bit with, you know, should I be doing something that is more healthcare kind of science related, you know, certainly glasses help have a health component to them, but it was sort of on the periphery of, you know, of, of the spectrum of, of uh, what I'd imagined I'd be doing, but really building in this, our, our social mission of our buy a pair, give a pair program and thinking about building a, a company that does good in the world kind of ultimately got me as excited or more excited than, than the actual business, business opportunity itself. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with Signature Hardware, it is beautiful. So as you guys are developing this plan, you're like, wow, this is really cool. We've we've identified like this massive inefficiency in the market. There's one player who's just dominating everything. 
and you start sharing this with, uh, you know, I guess, professors, teachers, advisors, and stuff like that. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, this is really fascinating. You know, it does seem like, but on the other hand, you've also got, you know, like a player who is so large and who controls so much. It's almost like, well, the minute you become a blip on a blip on a blip on the radar, the like, they'll just crush you. <laughs> um, or they will, you know, the minute that you prove the model of sort of like going direct, like, why wouldn't they just do the same thing with 50 times the selection and wipe you out? I mean, did you get resistance like that when you're offering the plan around? Yeah. So we, you know, I'm a big believer that you shouldn't keep kind of ideas a secret. You know, we talked to some people that are kind of in that are thinking about starting companies, but uh, don't want to talk to anyone about it because they're afraid that someone's going to steal their idea for us. We just wanted to get as much feedback as, as, as possible and bounce this off as many people a, as we could. And most people we talked to, their immediate reaction was to tell us why it won't work, mm-hmm. you know, including a lot of our you know, smartest friends and professors and, and people in, uh, with experience in the optical industry. And I think that is because most people are, are pretty risk averse and it's easier to kind of poke holes in something than uh, really believe in a vision, believe that you can do something that's never been done before. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, kind of their first reaction was, well, if this was a big opportunity, if people are willing to buy glasses online, some, someone would have done it. There's a reason that it doesn't exist yet. Right. Uh, and also it's like, it's, it, there's a try on that. Like you need to see, you, you want to touch and feel it and have it and see how it looks. Absolutely. And so, you know, we, we kind of talked to a lot of people and said, okay, well, what if we offer free shipping and free returns? And the price point is so compelling that it, it's such a big difference between what you'd get in a store. Would you then buy glasses online? And a lot of people, you know, some people said yes. Most people said, eh, you know, I, I think I'd rather just go to a store. Then we got, we started developing our, our first collection start getting samples in and we're just blown away by the the quality of product they were able to produce and and anyone that we you know we asked the same question okay well would you buy these glasses for $95 everyone's like oh yeah that, that's a no brainer and so then we came up with this idea for a home try on program where we were so confident in the kind of the quality of our frames and 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 the quality of our designs that we just wanted to get as many glasses on people's faces as possible and said okay how do we get people over the hurdle of buying glasses online. Uh, let's just send them a bunch of glasses. And so people can go to our website, pick five frames for free. We'll send them without prescription glasses, include a free return shipping label. So you can try them on no risk, no obligation. If you find a pair or two that you like, send us your prescription and we'll go ahead and make a custom pair. Even with those glasses, free shipping, free returns. So we really try to de-risk the purchase process as much as possible, given that we were trying to change behavior. And at the same time, <laughs> it's like, okay, so this is a really innovative and cool, sensible solution to the problem. And, you know, like from the outside looking in, people were sort of like looking at this probably like, that's a whole lot of complexity and, and cost. You know, you're going to send all this stuff like for free. I mean, and then you're still going to make money. Dude. Like, how is this even a viable business model? <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, when we kind of built in the home try on aspect, we started asking people and, and then, you know, consumer from a consumer standpoint, people said, Oh yeah, I'll try that. And, and so we got, we got really excited about the opportunity of including a home try on, but yeah, then we had people that were kind of thinking about the, the business model aspect of it and said, you know, I don't understand how you're ever going to make money. So the whole time you're basically like, you're fighting against everybody telling you, "Mm, no. (laughs) Absolutely. And ultimately we decided, Let's figure out what makes sense, the most sense for our customers. And then 
hopefully we can figure out a business model that, that makes sense and scales behind it. But you know, if people aren't willing to, to buy or aren't willing to try uh, these glasses, then you know, it doesn't matter how high our margins are because it's not going to be a viable business. So let's figure out the customer aspect first. And then <clears throat> um, hopefully we can optimize and, and, and figure out the margin structure after. Yeah. What, so, I mean, from there, it sounds like you're, you're drawing on like the different partners expertise. Like I'm, I'm guessing Neil was the one who brought, okay, so I know the production side of this, you know, like I know how we can actually get these sort of like early things made. And as you start to create, you know, sort of like the basic variations of this and you think about what this could be, I mean, you mentioned, let's just focus on the customer, you know, and we've, we feel like we've gotten where if we can just give them something extraordinary, you know, there's something in us, which is saying we can figure out how to make the business model work. What else was really important about you, uh, about this? Like what were like, because it seems like you're a very values-driven person and it sounds like the organization, but even from this very, very beginning, like concept days, like that was baked into it to a certain extent. Absolutely. We spend as much time kind of talking about the social mission for the organization and the company as we did around solving the, the try-on challenge. And we realized that we wanted to create a stakeholder-centric company and and wanted to be really thoughtful about kind of every aspect of the business, including our environmental impact. So we were 100% carbon neutral since day one, even though we had kind of, we, you know, we ended up bootstrapping the business. So we didn't raise any outside capital. We'd each worked for a few years and kind of took our life savings and, and poured it into this business. We weren't paying ourselves a salary. We didn't have any employees. We didn't have an office. We were just working out of our apartments. But even in those early days, we wanted to make sure that we were kind of living by our values and and so 100% carbon neutral and, and buying carbon offsets. But then thinking about how we could have broader broader impact and through Neil's work at Vision Spring, recognize that there are close to a billion people around the globe that need access to glasses. And, and this was an issue that we didn't think was getting enough attention. Right. It's not sort of dire the way that so many other things seem to be. Right. But giving someone a pair of glasses is one of the most effective poverty alleviation tools in the world. It allows them to to work and provide for their family. It allows people to learn and get an education. The University of Michigan did a study that shows that giving someone a pair of glasses increases their income by 20% and er earning potential by 35%. And so we knew that there was kind of a pretty simple solution to a massive problem and and talked about ways that, that we could use our, our company, which we wanted to make unapologetically for profit, but that could still do good in the world. And so we I can't we decided to to build our buy a pair, give a pair program into the business from day one. Again, kind of even though we were watching every penny, we wanted to make sure that for every pair of glasses we sold, we provided donation to organizations like Vision Spring that fully funds the distribution of a pair of glasses and uh, the production and distribution of a pair of glasses. And, and that was something that was critically important to us. And and we spent kind of as much time talking about that aspect of the business as as we did solving kind of the, the customer issues that we were facing. Yeah. So it's like that was a non-negotiable part of all the decision making from day one. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned that you bootstrapped the whole thing. This Warby Parker went live 20, 2000, kind of officially 2009-ish or 2010? 2010, February 2010. Where like when, you know, take a, a look back at where the economy was in the US back then, brutal time to be, to be launching a company, especially sort of like a product heavy company where you need to you need to actually spend a lot of money to create inventory. How do you make that work? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we'd started talking about the business in 
kind of the end of 2008. And then we launched in early 2010. And you know, that was a pretty dismal period in in the economy. But I think sometimes the, you know, a lot of the best businesses are formed during kind of the, the downturns in the cycle. And it, and it also gave us the opportunity to attract uh, some pretty incredible talent that otherwise might not, might've cost us a lot more and that might not have been available. You know, our first employees, we hired them from Craigslist and we told them to, you know, come and work out of Neil's apartment the next day. And, and these are, you know, incredibly talented people, many of whom are, are still within the organization that are leading big parts of our team that, you know, if the economy had been booming, they probably would have had a, a bunch of other options. And so yeah, I think we got fortunate in in some aspects there we also you know we were able to when we launched we we only spent money on three things it was one getting our initial set of inventory second having someone help build our website since none of us were technical and, and third was hiring a, a fashion pr firm to help get us uh, kind of get the get the word out and i think you know in terms of hiring vendors whether it was a uh, you know pr firm or or engineering firm that that could help get our website up we were able to take advantage of kind okay, of some of the negativity in the economy to to do those things cheaper than they would have been if, if things yeah. were booming because all those say all, what you just listed were all taking a huge hit too and they lost a ton of their clientele absolutely i know somebody who's you know like had a thriving, booming tech, like consulting and coding and stuff like that. You know, the company went bust completely. And so many people, friends of mine in advertising and PR walked into their office and they're like, eh, no, <laughs> pack up your office and go home. And it also, you know, I think it forced us to just be really scrappy. Yeah. And But also you were offering a product. I mean, this is like, talk about sort of like, you know, there's, there's a you know, metric ton of work that goes into this and an incredible idea. And then there's always timing, you know, that plays into which you can't, plan. But you so at the same time, everybody, millions of people are financially hurting, but they still need, if you need glasses, you need glasses. And all of a sudden you show up and you're like, hey, you know, the four or five, six, seven hundred dollar glasses that you know like you think you had to pay for. What if you could get, you know, like the same quality product for a fraction of the price from what was happening in the economy? That was like must have been like a huge direct hit too, because you're solving, you're speaking to a huge and current pain point. Yeah, I think the the messaging resonated with a lot of people right off the bat, and and you know we had talked to a lot of people that had started companies and and launched uh, websites before us, and they had really tempered our expectations about what to expect after launch, and they said you know just because you put up your site, just because you think you have a good idea, doesn't mean anyone's going to come, doesn't mean anyone's going to buy anything, and so you know I joke that yeah, you know, if nothing else, my mom would buy a hundred pairs of glasses from us to you know make us feel okay about the effort that we'd put in here. So what happens when, I mean, you, like the day comes where you literally need to flip the switch on the website and, and your business was at that time entirely, like it's all based on, will people come to this website? And like the day comes where you're like, okay, we got to go live. Yeah. And so our PR firm had secured a you know, feature for us in GQ and Vogue in the March issue of, of 2010. And we get a call in the middle of February from publicists saying, Hey guys, what are you doing? GQ's hitting newsstands tomorrow. And I just went to your website. It says coming soon. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> and, and so naively, we had thought that March issues actually come out in March uh, and didn't realize that they they come out a few weeks early. And so we were on the phone with, we'd found one developer in Canada using kind of a marketplace site called Odesk who was building our site. 
and we were way behind on where we thought we would be. And so we were kind of on the phone with him till four in the morning, just trying to squash as many bugs as we could. And then we said, okay, well, this is definitely not perfect, but it's good enough. Let's flip a switch. And so at 4 a.m., made the website live. It still wasn't anywhere close to where we wanted to be. And so didn't want to tell anyone that it was live. My mom didn't know it was live. Our best friends didn't know it was live. But then a few hours later, I uh, yeah, got a couple hours of sleep and then I was sitting in class. We were still full-time students at the time, sitting in class at 2 a.m. Or sorry, sitting in class at 10 a.m. I had my phone set up to be notified anytime we got an order. And we got our first order in and I got super excited and I emailed Jeff, Neil, and Andy. We were um, all in the same class. We weren't supposed to be using our laptops, but kind of loudly typing away and they were responding. And, and then 10 minutes later, got another order and then another order and then another order. I mean, we had an hour and a half long class. And by the end of class, I was looking at our, our order log and realized we had taken more orders than we had inventory for. And so we had an emergency meeting and we were debating everything from, you know, do we just take the website down? Do we keep taking orders and figure things out later? Kind of what, what do we do here? We, we didn't have any waitlist functionality or sold out functionality. That was, this is like the one problem you hadn't planned. Yeah. For. That was yeah. never, that was never discussion on the roadmap. We never thought that would be an issue. And so we frantically called Brett, um, our developer and he was there and miraculously was able to really quickly build in waitlist functionality. And all of a sudden we had a waitlist of 20,000 uh, people. And um, in how long, how long did it actually do that? In a, a period of a few weeks. So yeah, in our first month, we had a, a wait list of 20,000 people. We were sold out of all our top styles. That's kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> and we had this home try-on program that we're super excited about. You know, Within the 48, first 48 hours, we're completely stocked out of all our home try-on inventory. And we... We had one employee at the time who we told her she'd work for 12 hours a week because that's when all the four founders had overlapping classes. And we had set up a customer service number, a 1-800 number through Google Voice that when someone called it, it would call all four founders' cell phones simultaneously. And whoever picked up, it would stop ringing <laughs> on the other people's phones. Realized we had 12 hours of class where none of us would be able to, to pick up our phones. Little do we know that after that, we really didn't go to, much, to class much, but we told her she'd be working 12 hours a week. That first week, she worked over 100 hours. Now she's running our whole customer experience team and is over 200 people. But yeah, those those first few days were exciting, but hectic and terrifying. And we just wanted to make sure that we weren't kind of disappointing our you know, the early adopters, the people that were giving us a chance, but we were completely overwhelmed by demand. Yeah. I mean, and that can be on the one hand, it can it can completely destroy what you're trying to do, but on the other hand, the fact that you know within 48 hours of opening, like wait, everyone's getting waitlisted, and a couple of weeks later, you've got like you know 20,000 people on a waitlist. You know that story also is is incredibly. It's sort of like focuses everyone like wow, like everyone wants to talk about it at that point. It creates like a whole follow on wave of attention around the fact that that happened. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, so GQ and Vogue came out with these great articles about us. GQ called us the Netflix of eyewear, really focused on our home try-on program. And they had like a two-page spread where they had, they were showing four glasses in really high resolution. There were Tom Ford glasses for $450, Bottega Veneta for $400. And I can't remember the, the, I think it was Robert Mark for $400. And then Mark glasses for $95, including prescription lenses. And so it was just kind of this really powerful brand moment. And at the time, 
Instagram didn't even exist yet, but Facebook was a ubiquitous platform. They hadn't really started charging for advertising yet. And so at the time, content was really freely shared. And so this got posted by a bunch of people and then turned into kind of this snowball. And then other, other editors saw it on Facebook or read about us. And then they started writing stories. And so it became kind of this, this movement that, that, really caught us off guard, but was was super exciting. And then we started getting calls from, we were based in Philadelphia at the time, going to school. Uh, we started getting calls from people all over Philly that knew we were based there and said, hey, read about you in GQ or read about you in Vogue. I want to try on the glasses, but there's this massive waiting list. Can I come to your store or your office? And we said, the store is my apartment, but come on right, over. Right. I think Philly so had you'll be the, at the cafeteria. Too. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think Billy had the second highest murder rate uh, in the country at the time. And we were just inviting you know, strangers left and right into our apartments, laid the glasses out on the dining room table, had our laptops up as kind of checkout where people have to go through the full kind of e-commerce checkout. And initially we were kind of scared that that would be a suboptimal customer experience, but we found customers loved it. They loved getting to meet the people behind the brand. They loved uh, being able to try on the entire collection. So that was, that was kind of like effectively the first... Warby Parker store. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we joke that Neil's apartment was our first store. And we learned so much from those face-to-face -face interactions that you know, I think that we realized that e-commerce had a lot of potential, but so did kind of a bricks and mortar environment. And, and then that put us on a path to really experiment with a bunch of other kind of store-like experiences before we actually had to commit to a lease everything from you know putting what we called a showroom into our first office when we when we graduated from school and, and moved to new york we were on the the sixth floor of a commercial building and had a couple hundred square feet where we had some west elm tables with some glasses on them and and some computers open to our homepage. and all of a sudden we had hundreds of people a day into that into that office and then we tried some pop-up shops we bought an old yellow school bus that we gutted and turned the interior into a store that toured the country kind of setting up shop uh, in 18 different cities and that kind of put us on the trajectory to to really think about physical retail as as a real avenue for for growth and profitability in addition to our e-commerce business yeah so this is this is taking off i mean from a giving people something incredible standpoint from a social mission standpoint it's taken off I'm also kind of fascinated because you guys are, you're known for having built not just a product that is, that is really effective and a social mission around it, but also a culture, you know, so you're, you know, where people who come to you, people who join your family, your team, they're not just raising their hand to say, I'm employee number 1048 there. It seems like they're raising their hand to be a part of something bigger. Does, is, does that resonate? Yeah. The number one reason that people want to work for Orby Parker is that uh, we have a social mission embedded in the business that, that we, we generally are trying to focus on all our stakeholders and that, that starts with our customers, but, but we also think about the environment. We think about our shareholders. We think about the broader community and, and just about how we can use our organization as a vehicle to, to make the world better. And we find that, you know, a lot of our employees are customers first and tend to be super passionate about the brand and are kind of attracted to work for a mission driven organization. And, and so, you know, as we think about sort of the, the financial impact of something like I buy a pair, give a pair program, it's certainly real dollars that we're, we're investing, but we feel like we're, we're having a lot of impact. We've now distributed over 4 million pairs of glasses to people in need through that, through that program. And the, I think the biggest benefit from a 
business perspective is just being able to attract and retain some of the most talented, passionate people in the world that work incredibly hard to create positive impact. Yeah. So as we sit here today, you know, you and your partners have built this incredible company. Last time I read something financial about you, there's you know, like a billion plus valuation on the company. You've got a thousand something employees. You're doing you know incredible work and offering a product and a service, and there's a social mission attached to it. What scares you about what you're doing right now? I think my biggest fear is just not capitalizing on the opportunity in front of us. It feels like we have so much white space in, in, in terms of growing our business, making customers happy, delivering great value, helping people around the world, but more than, and, and having a lot of positive impact directly, but more than that, really hope to be an example for other organizations, for other entrepreneurs to show that you can build a great for-profit business that that does good in the world and you don't have to charge a premium for it. And the world's problems are bigger and more complex than ever. And especially in light of kind of our current situation, can't rely on governments and nonprofits to solve these problems. And a lot of the smartest people in the world want to work for for-profit organizations that can afford to pay them uh, kind of market rates. And, and I'm a huge believer that there's this massive opportunity for for-profit businesses to, to help make the help make the world better. And, and hopefully we can do that ourselves and have a lot of impact ourselves. But I think we can amplify that and, and multiply that by being a great, you know, an example of a great business that consumers don't have to sacrifice anything, that employees don't have to sacrifice anything uh, to work for. And so I think my biggest fear is that we're not, we're not doing enough. We're not moving fast enough. We're not, we're not doing as much good as, as, as we, we could be. Yeah. I mean, interesting. you brought up the word sacrifice. When you look at the price that a lot of founders pay to build something the size that you've built, very often that, you know, the toll it takes on your health, on your state of mind, on your relationships is kind of devastating. How have you navigated those three areas as you've built this entity at the same time? Yeah, I think founding and scaling a, a business is a very intense experience and it can become all-consuming. And a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I think that kind of goes out the window when when you're starting a company and, and really need to think about more work-life integration where that there's going to be a kind of a constant tone around work and the business that is going to exist 24 hours a day and need to figure out kind of how to how to manage that while kind of continue to invest in you know, important relationships in kind of pursuing other interests and, and maintaining health and getting enough sleep. And I think certainly I was a, a victim of, of not having kind of the, any, any semblance of balance in, in the early days would fall asleep every night, kind of fully dressed with the laptop on my chest, you know, responding to, to customers or trying to do, you know, put in that cross that, last item off the to-do list that I realized was actually never ending. And now my, you know, my role has changed tremendously. We have a team of close to 1500 people that my job is managing managers of managers. And, and I've tried to ensure that I'm less of a bottleneck and kind of certain, you know, day to say, day to 
day-to-day decisions so things can can move forward. And, and my role is more around ensuring that the team has everything that they need to, to do their jobs and hopefully kind of push down decision-making as far into the organization as possible so the people that are closest to customers, closest to the data are the ones that are making the decisions as opposed to things kind of bottlenecking up to the top of the organization. And as a result, have have also, I think, have now have kind of more freedom to in terms of kind of how I spend my days, which has allowed me to incorporate kind of other aspects, uh, you know, kind of non-work life into routines. And I've realized kind of how important it is for me to get exercise and sleep and and meditate and spend time with friends and family, that those things are are critical, not only for kind of my own well-being, but it it makes me a better CEO. It makes me a better leader of the organization. And so really try to be deliberate about spending time on kind of other non non work areas of my life. Yeah, um, it makes a lot of sense. It, it's always I'm always looking for exemplars of people who have built something very substantial, and are also seem to be living quote a good life. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and everyone defines that somewhat differently. And I'm about to ask you how you sort of define it. There, what I found is that there aren't a lot of examples out there that there. It's it's not in you know it. It's one thing to to build something to a certain level and preserve, you know, all the other things outside of that thing that you're building that you hold dear, but to scale something on the level of a genuine enterprise with, you know, global reach and global impact. I found very few people that have been able to move through that process or even emerge or sort of awaken to sort of, you know, like a realignment of what matters most in their lives without taking really big hits, hits along the way. Yeah. Well, I think the, the world is so, there's so much competition in the world that, you know, to, to build something that is substantial today, you have to offer a product or service that is better, you know, better than any other organization is creating or, or scaling. And so in order to do that, I think you have to take some pretty drastic steps and and be willing to run through walls and and I think kind of any entrepreneur that you know comes to mind as someone that ha- has built something really massive you know they sort of they they've believed in themselves and they've invested in that vision in you know pretty kind of pointed not you know, not a well-rounded way but in a very pointed way yeah and I think at, at some point for you to sustain the vision and to sustain growth, at some point, you always have to come back to the awakening that, okay, so I actually, like like you just shared, actually, my relationships do matter. My health matters critically, you know, like my well-being, because that's the thing that not just makes life better, but also allows me to do this thing that I do at the level that it requires right now. So it's like, you know, I have to circle back to that. It's like, it's almost like if you don't hit the moment where you circle back to that, at some point, you will just crash and burn in a big way. And there's a good chance that that's going to you know, sort of ripple out into this thing that you're really trying to build. Absolutely. And I think it comes back to um, kind of viewing things under different time frames. So if you're trying to kind of push something forward as far as possible within a period of weeks or months, um, you can just grind that out and cut 
your sleep and cut other things out of your life and just try to be singularly focused on something in an incredibly intense way. And that's probably how you're going to be the most productive in a short time period, but that's not sustainable. And, and so when you're, at least when we were starting our company, we had no idea if it was going to be successful or not. And so in those first you know few weeks and months, we were just doing everything that we could you know, to to kind of create a viable entity. And then once we realized that, oh, this this thing has staying power, this, you know, started taking a much longer perspective and, and time frame and, and realized that if I want to be doing this, if I want to be effective for years and decades to come in a leadership role of this company, then I need to take care of myself and I need to incorporate uh, kind of those other elements in, into my life. Yeah. Feels like a good time for us to come full circle. So if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up for you? Yeah, for me, living a good life means that you're leaving the world better than than it was before uh, you came and, and so that you're positively impacting a large group of people while having fun along the way and going on adventures with with interesting people and and exploring interesting topics, always learning, always challenging yourself, but all under the guise of leaving the world better than it was before you got here. Thank you. Thank you. So if you're still listening, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just completely love that you enjoyed this episode so much that you've listened until now. You're an awesome human being. And while we're wrapping things up, might as well um, share a quick shout out to our super cool brand partners. If you love the show, and I'm guessing you do because you're still here, please support them. They help make the podcast possible. Check out the links in today's show notes. And don't forget also your spot at this year's Camp GLP. As we recently announced, this will be our final year. We're expecting about 400 amazing humans from all around the world. It's going to be more epic than ever. And if you've been waiting, be sure to register soon. You can find that link at goodlifeproject.com slash camp today, or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.